chapter 8, Acts chapter 8. We'll be looking on page 1166 in your pew Bible, Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're moving to the second part of the story of Philip, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. Uh, I'll be uh, looking, as I said, beginning there in verse 25. So please let us reverently attend. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That's the setting for this next story. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I understand unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation or his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch says to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip Away, And the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and then he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns there until he came to Caesarea. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, take this interesting story and open our eyes. Show us things that we may not have seen before. Apply this gospel to our hearts. And I pray that at the end of this message, there may be joy in this room, in all of our hearts, similar to this man's joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Memorial Day. I've already touched on the fact that it has to do with remembering. And as I asked in Sunday school this morning, do you know when the first uh, memorial services were held and where they were held? If we had the Jeopardy music, I could give you some, you know, beep in. Uh, You may not realize this, but it appears from the reading that I have that that some of the first Memorial Day uh, services were actually in the church. 
that it was in, 19, or in 1868, right after the war, uh, the, the, the Civil War, the war between the states, there was enough people that were mourning and in, in trauma that they wanted to do something that would dedicate, similar to what was done at Gettysburg. Now, this caught on in a few different places in New York, and, and the first time it was officially recognized where the President of the United States got involved, it was at Arlington Cemetery, and it was reminding me of what Brother Larry just indicated. With full honors, there were 20,000 people gathered to honor the 5,000 that had died. But since then, there, when it became a national holiday, the shift moved away from it being a time of memorial to visit the, the monuments, and it became a weekend to enjoy pleasure. And that's the way it is. As, uh, our, our, as, as the one guy used to say, that's the rest of the story. But there are things that we can do that, that will help us to remember why these things were set up the way they were. Because we shouldn't forget. Uh, it's not something that we should just say doesn't matter anymore. Uh, back in 2000, the president actually said, hey, let's make 3 o'clock on Memorial Day at least a time where you might stop and remember. I don't know if that changed a whole lot. But I often wondered if you were at some of those uh, junctures, if you had lived back in the Civil War time and you were a Marylander and you had one son that fought on the north and one son that fought on the south, which there were numerous people that experienced that, how would you celebrate? Did Did the north win? Did the south win? How would you bring resolution to that? It would be very, very difficult, and yet it is not difficult to honor their sacrifice. There was a lot of emotion this week in in Hiroshima as the first time a president, I think 71 years since the bomb dropped in 1945 there in August 6th that was just alluded to by one of our brethren. Uh, This is the first time a president has been there. With all the pageantry, with all the presidential fervor or, or flavor that comes with it, There was a lot of concern. What's transpired over these last years? Would there be an apology or would there just be sympathy? How would you function? And it was interesting how one story seemed to be brought as a human interest story. There was a fellow, a Japanese man, who wanted to honor some of the POWs that died there too. Just to think about this great sacrifice. What are we willing to die for? What are we willing to give our life for? Or make it more personal, what would you die for? Our church is here to carry on. The freedoms that have been secured by those who have fought, by those who have survived, by the victor, because as they say, the victor takes the spoil. The fact that we have the liberty to have... uh, Freedom of of speech, freedom to assemble, freedom to be able to proclaim the gospel. This just didn't happen. And uh, if you go back in history, you're going to find that there were a lot of sacrifices, sometimes not on battlefields. But they were made so that we might be able to do what we're doing today. To open God's word and hear the gospel proclaimed. Our church is seeking to be more effective at preaching the gospel, of taking advantage of this liberty that we have been given by Christ. We have five or 11 initiatives that boil down to five main things, and you've heard them. They're on the back of the bulletin. 
prayer, discipleship, caring, commitment, and communication. We want everybody here to have a a prayer life that cultivates actively a, a communication with God. Do you pray? Do you only pray when you're, as they say, uh, when you're in the foxhole? Or do you pray and have a conversation with God regularly? Secondly, discipleship. Are you cultivating an ongoing relationship with somebody in God's family? Whether as the leader or as the one being led? Discipleship. Thirdly, are you caring? Do you demonstrate an intentional connection with people that are called Christians? Or do you cut the cords and stay away? The idea of caring for one another is a biblical mandate. Also, fourthly, is commitment. As the emphasis that our church is putting forth, instead of volunteering, we want you to commit. We're asking you to engage in the kingdom of God with clarity, ownership, and oversight. When you get involved, we want you to know it's not forever, but we want you to know you're responsible. And fifthly, we want to communicate, to fulfill this great commission that God has given us so that everyone is a conduit of the truth. Whether you're working with Soup Lunch or whether you're working with WOW Ministry or whether you're working in your neighborhood association. Communication. That's been the theme during this month. If you look at the bulletin card, you're going to be able to see we are trying to promote clear communication. And the book of Acts has some great stories about these communications. Today, what's fascinating is that the communication that takes place in the early church results in this three-letter word. J-O-Y. If I could just turn the mirror on you, turn the video camera and look at your faces, there's not many of you that are smiling. So many people are consumed. We just went through that whole exercise of reflecting about a lot of our lost loved ones. I've got to mention, too, the story that I had in uh, in the past. My mom used to tell me about her grandfather in World War I who, who lied about his age so he could get into the war. Different things like that. Everybody's got stories. But I want to be able to tell you that the reason people suffered and died was so that we would have the joy of coming into God's presence and experiencing forgiveness. And that's what I want to focus on today. In our text, when we just read this story, we learned about a man who experienced, point number one, some confusion. At the end of the story, which is point number two, he experiences, instead of confusion, he has comprehension. He gets it. And the rest of the story, the rest of the sermon is going to be point number three. What's the change? I want to be able to explain to you today from the early, early church history of, of the organized church, not of the invisible church, but of the organized church. Communication is the key. And I want to equip you to be able to to do that, to hallow the the reason why people have gone before us so that you can take the gospel to the ends of the earth yourself. The first point is the evidence that we see in the text about confusion. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 26 through 31. He is the angel comes to him and says, get up and, and go this direction, head towards Gaza. Now, if you know about Gaza, it's where the Philistines used to be. It's along the Mediterranean coast. It's way down on the, uh, on the lower, shall we say, left side of Israel. So he ends up taking this trip down because the coastline is lower than the hills of Jerusalem. And he's heading there and he meets this one individual, a man from Ethiopia. Now, you shouldn't be surprised because if you understand 
that from Jerusalem to Gaza, if you stay along the coast, you're going to end up crossing the Suez Canal. It wasn't back there, but you'd end up crossing into Egypt, and then you head south, and you'd find, a, find yourself in the country of Ethiopia. You see, this is just on his way home. But the Spirit of the Lord comes to him and tells him to meet. So I want to be able to tell you that the setting for this confusion is that he's just been to church in Jerusalem. He's just gone through all the religious motions, and he's heading home. And does he seem joyful? He's been to church. You would think that this guy is on his way home on a Sunday afternoon and he's just saying, what a wonderful life I have. He's baffled. He's struggling. It's an interesting place to be when you say, how can I figure this out? You know, that's why I want to to be able to show you that this man was just not a nobody. He was from Ethiopia, yes. He's, you know, not too far from where the equator is and the the Tropic of Capricorn. He's in that landlocked country. But he is a trusted man. This guy is one of the the court officers. If In today's world, we might say he's a cabinet officer in, in the White House. He takes care of the Department of Treasury. He understands how it works. He's in charge of the money. If somebody's in charge of the money, what does that usually mean? That you want to trust him, unless his name's Judas. A eunuch. The Bible describes him as a man who, who, who a lot of things have been taken out of his life. A lot of the, uh, the, the distractions that are, that are there for regular men. This guy, being a eunuch, he's had some anatomy issues changed. He's not able to have children. He's not able to be married and enjoy it. So guess what? He is focused on his job. He's dedicated to the cause. There's nothing else that he's worried about. There's no legacy issues. There's nothing. He's just going to devote himself to being a great worker in Queen Candace's, in her court. What a great testimony about this guy. Nothing negative is said about him, and yet he's not joyful, and he's not happy. If you are one of those folks that understands what it's like to not be joyful, even though so many other things come together, you can identify with him. Jesus has mentioned the eunuchs there in Matthew chapter 19. He says, for there are many eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are those eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. He was saying, hey, to be focused on the kingdom of God is a good thing. That's what Jesus was clarifying. Now, I wanted to name this guy Earl for the sake of the sermon. Earl from Ethiopia. Okay, so when I reference it, you know who I'm talking about. The Bible doesn't tell us his name. But Earl... As, as an application of his confusion, he is a representative not just of, of just some people, but of all, all of mankind. As such, he demonstrates what we call in the reform circles depravity. He doesn't get it because of his own ability. Even though he is smart, even though he's focused, even though he's dedicated, even though he's responsible, there's a lot of other adjectives we could use. He might even have better adjectives for him than you have for you. But he doesn't get it. He's confused. He is spiritually depraved. He cannot escape the confusion regarding spiritual matters. He looks even at the Bible and it doesn't make sense. He does not have the ability to arrive at the destination of understanding. He needs help. There is an acknowledgement of God, yes, but he doesn't know God personally. 
He's just been to church, and he's walking away, and he doesn't get the gospel. He doesn't have it. He is looking, but he cannot see. He is a smart man with money, but he doesn't realize what treasure he's actually holding in that scroll that he has. This is total depravity. There is nothing good about you or me or any human being that makes us worthy for God to say, you're good enough to go to heaven. You look pretty sharp or, or you're, you're right at the cusp. No, there's nothing like that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Depravity has touched every compartment of your life. Even if you think you've arrived in a lot of places, you haven't. Every place has been tainted with sin. Total depravity leads to sorrow. It leads to frustration. This man's self-disclosure of confusion sets the stage for the rest of the story. He has exhausted the means available to him. He has searched the world over and thought he found it. And he couldn't see it. There's a lot of people in this world that don't get religion. I mean, they might get religion, but they don't get the relationship with God. They don't understand what's in the word of God. They go through all the motions, look the part, and there may be even some of you here that, that identify accordingly. But you don't get it. And if you look at the words that he says, he says, how can I know unless somebody shows me? Point number one, the evidence of confusion. Point number two is the evidence of comprehension. This beautiful passage does not leave us with a morbid face. You don't need to leave today being sad because when you leave today, you too can be like him and have comprehension. Verse 31 to 39 sums it up. He says, after his confession in verse 31, how can I, unless someone guides me, now turns in towards the end where he says, uh, verse 36 And as they were going along the road, they came along some water. And the same eunuch who just a few minutes earlier said, I can't understand it. Now he's applying and he says, I see some water. I want to join the church. I want to be baptized. I get it. It makes sense to me. When you get the gospel, you're going to understand what's worth dying for. We just preached about Stephen a few weeks ago. How Stephen stood there and the stones had those stones in the bucket. If a stone was coming at you, what would you do? You'd duck, you'd run, you'd get away, you'd live to live to to play another day. You know, that's what we would do. But he stood and Jesus said, come on home. When When you look at what's going on in the text, this man understands what's worth dying for. He gets it now. He says, I want to be identified with the people of God. I'm looking at that passage in Isaiah, and it's making sense to me. Stop the chariot. I want this now. Don't put it off 10 years or 10 months or even 10 days. Right now. I want to be able to show the evidence of this change from confusion to comprehension. First, he admits that he needs a guide. Many people never get to that point. You go through life leaning on your own understanding. You look at things and you say, I get it. I know everything. I'm not confused about anything. I understand it all. You don't understand it all at all. None of us understand it all. I mean, even the pundits, when you're looking at the election that's going on with the candidates that are, people can't understand how they won with so unfavorable. Everybody's unfavorable. How can they win when they're so unfavorable? Nothing makes sense. The comprehension, this is not, the comprehension that he got is not how you understand people. It's how you understand salvation. 
You see, he understood how salvation works because he finally realized that he could never solve that solution on his own. He needed someone to help him. He asked the questions about the text. He's been reading it, and instead of saying, I understand it, I know everything, he asked for help. He studies, he looks to other people. He's looking at the things of the past, and he's trying to make present tense applications, meanings, and, and trying to figure out what was accomplished then. And the beauty is that he can now see. The beauty is that now he believes. The beauty is now he wants to be identified with the people of God. The beauty is in the present tense, he is never going to run away from the gospel again. He's never going to have to go home miserable that he doesn't understand. This is tantamount to our understanding of salvation. There is a before and there is an after. When a person becomes a Christian, they're different from what they used to be. No one ever is born a Christian. Did you get that? Everybody that joins this church, if I ask them, you know, uh, when did you become a Christian? There is a tendency for some to say, well, I always was. I want to tell you, you always weren't. Praise God, you are now. You may not be able to remember everything in the past, but for, for there had to be a point in time when sin was atoned for, when the blood was applied to your, your, the door of your heart. As I said, no one is a Christian by inheritance. No one is a Christian by divine legacy or, or by any kind of legacy. Not if your father was an elder, not if your father was a missionary, not if your father was a carpenter. Get the pun. And Jesus had a father that was a carpenter. Nor if he was a pilot, a politician, a programmer, a dentist, a doctor, or a diplomat. It doesn't matter what your dad was. You are a sinner in, needing a, in need of salvation. You need to be taken from that place of confusion to be brought into the place of comprehension of this great gospel. Now, have we set the stage? Do you know the gospel? Do you understand what changed Earl? Well, let's look at it. There are five things that I found in the change, the divine inputs, because we really believe that this just ha did not happen by accident. It was not just a fluke circumstance that, oh, he just happened to be there. I want you to be able to see that for salvation to come to a person's lost soul, that God is the initiator and the finisher. Philippians 1.6, he that begins a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it. God's doing a good work in this Ethiopian guy. Earl is not at Jerusalem by accident. Just like you're not at church today by accident. God is drawing you. And this is the means of grace that he uses. There's five particular means of grace I want to highlight that we see in the text. The first one is the history. There is some history that set the stage for all of this. What are you talking about, Pastor? He is in Jerusalem. Why isn't he in Cairo? Why wasn't he over there in Rome? The text tells us that he went to Jerusalem to do what? To worship. He went there to go to church. Why would he go to Jerusalem to go to church if, he, if it's a whole lot easier and a lot shorter distance if he would have just visited some kind of church in Egypt? Why did he go to Jerusalem? If you know the Bible, you're going to understand that the history is, is that the Ethiopians all knew from 700 plus years ago that there was another queen who came up to Jerusalem. 
the Queen of Sheba, she ended up coming to visit with Solomon to see what was going on, to be able to understand what Solomon understood, to see the glory days when the presence of the living and true God filled the church. What a day that was when he did. They, they were there for quite a while, and she ends up going back to Ethiopia. And I can only imagine what was written in their history scrolls about Jerusalem. And I bet people wanted to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to find out about that God. But I don't think many could make the trip. They didn't have Greyhound buses, and they didn't have the airplanes, and they didn't. To be able to make that journey was a big, big deal. It was hard enough on us driving around there. <laughs> When we, were, when we were in Jerusalem with nice buses. But if you think about it, he was privileged to go to Jerusalem, but he still doesn't know the God that's there, that's being worshipped at that big, giant church, the temple. So he's going home, and, he's, and that's the first point, though, is that there was a history. He knew about God. Secondly, he had the Bible. Now, in his day, he didn't have the KJV virgin. And he, you know, he should have had the KJV, shouldn't he? But why didn't he have the KJV version? Because that was written in 1611, and I'm telling you, this is way, way back there in 33. Okay, it hasn't been written yet. He has the Bible of his day. It's a scroll, and he has one of the Old Testament scrolls, and it's probably a big deal. And if you owned a scroll, what does that tell you about that person? He's wealthy. So this guy has everything you could imagine, but he's still not joyful. He's just been to church. He's just had all the religion he can digest. He's going home. He's got the Bible because somebody told him he should read it. And he's not understanding it still. Do you feel like that sometimes? He ends up, I just am so fascinated. He's reading the word of God. So God provided a history for him. God provided a revelation for him. And thirdly, God provided him something that Paul says in Romans 10 is essential. He provided him an expositor, a preacher, a teacher. And that's so cool when, when most people, well, I'll just be blunt. Most people today don't want a preacher and teacher to tell them anything. You don't get to that place of saying, how can I understand it? Because we think we understand it. But when you look at how it unfolds, God provided this man. And I want you to know that it's a God provision because Philip wouldn't have been there otherwise. Philip didn't, he just made the journey to Jerusalem. Why would he run back to Gaza? But God provided a preacher. If you go to Romans 10, it says, how can they believe on him of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless God sends somebody? And how can, you know, how can they preach unless they be sent? You see, the whole idea, this is God's dynamic for getting the word of God to people so that the confusion can be lifted and people can see the truth that sets them free. The gospel, which liberates us from the bondage that we have to our sin. The third thing was an expositor. The fourth thing is something that changed everything. The preacher man didn't fix everything. It wasn't the eloquence of Philip that changed changed the sad day into a happy day. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the text, initially the, the text opens up with an angel coming to, Pete, to Philip and says, get over there. I think if an angel told me to go someplace, I'd go too. Okay. So he goes. But if you notice a little bit later, the Holy Spirit actually speaks to Philip. The Holy Spirit internally is speaking to his spirit and he's giving him guidance and he's saying, you need to go over there and you need to ask this question. You need to probe here. You need to do this. 
And because he's being led by the Spirit, you can read about how the Spirit leads us in Romans 8. He not only confirms that we're the children of God, but he, he inspires us and moves us on. And that's why we know all things work together for the good, because the Spirit of God is there. And the Spirit of God takes the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word, and he makes it effectual. He does something that nobody else can do. He can put faith in you. Because without faith, you're still blind. Without faith, you can't see. And you're going to still be singing that thing about amazing grace. I once was lost and I still am. Until the Holy Spirit gives you faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 spells it out so clearly for the church at Ephesus. Where he says, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That faith is not of yourselves. You didn't manufacture it. You didn't buy it. Simeon couldn't buy it. You can't buy it. The faith that comes is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing the word. And that's what the Holy Spirit was doing. He brought an expositor to open up the revelation, to make sense of what what the uh, Queen of Sheba had already left in history. And there he is. He gets the eyes of faith. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. They were opened. They were opened. And if you look at the text, you just have to marvel. (laughs) He's joyful. He says... um, at the end, when they, after they came up out of the water, uh, the eunuch saw Philip no more, and, and he went away rejoicing. The confusion was gone. So when you look at how all this unfolds, you got those four key things. You have the revelation. Excuse me. You have the history that God set it all up so that he knows about God. He ends up in Jerusalem. Then you have the word of God being there, but it's not understood by itself. Then God brings an expositor who explains and gives the words of eternal life. And then you have the Holy Spirit making it effectual. And then you see the joy. I want to be identified with God's people. Now, when you have all that understanding, it's an exciting day to how to see what happened in the past changes the present. And I want to be able to ask you a couple of applications now. Are you like Earl? Are you confused? If you're getting caught up with some kind of confusion because you think you know that works this way when it's not, when you think that this understanding of theology is this way because that's the way you've always done it, or if you think that this is the way it belongs in your neighborhood, or this is the way it has to be in the political realm, you can't vote for somebody, or some others will say, you have to vote for this person. You see, if you have, con- if you have gotten to the place where you've arrived, be careful. Be careful. Ask for wisdom. James chapter 1 says, you have not because you don't ask. You ask wrongly. So the first thing is, if you're like Earl, you can see things, but you can't understand them. I pray that God will give you what you need, someone to show you how to see. Secondly, I want to say it's, uh, um, we, we may mask our ignorance with arrogance. We may actively deceive our minds through creative rewriting. Uh, we may postulate things that aren't actually real, there's a lot of people that do that with postmodern thinking. You know what? They find things in the Constitution that I can guarantee that those guys who wrote the Constitution didn't even think about. You see, those are the kind of things that are part of postmodern illogicalism. And Christians are buying into it. There's illogical behavior, and when you engage in it, you're becoming more and more postmodern, and you're becoming an agent or a missionary for postmodern thinking. I want to encourage you to be a Christian and to not be confused. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewings of your minds that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. There's many more things that could be said. 
I just want you to go away understanding what the text was. The earl was reading Isaiah. Let me read it for you. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, he didn't open his mouth. That's what Earl was reading. And Earl couldn't get it. Do you? This is from Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of those passages, you know, we could quote the whole thing. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, he shall grow up out of, as, as, a, as a little tender plant out of a root out of dry ground. There is no form or comeliness that we should behold him. You know, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. All those things that are talking about our suffering Savior. We know who it is. Do we? This is the beautiful part. Philip looks at him and he says, um, in verse 35, he opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. No matter what else is going on in your life, I want to tell you the good news about Jesus. Yes, there's going to be some bill that's passed through the, the Delaware State House. They want to give equal rights now to people who want to choose their gender. They want to make it a constitutional amendment. Again, hard to believe that they have free time on their hands to figure that out. But that's not our biggest worry. What does it profit a man if he gets to vote right and he still goes to hell? If you look at the Greek word when it says to tell the gospel, it really is not telling. The Greek word is the, is the action form of the word euangelion, which means good news. It means that the Philip stood there, and the good news just flowed out of him. The good news just popped out of him like if you shook up a champagne bottle and you popped the cork. It just came out. He couldn't keep Jesus inside of him anymore because he was not ashamed of the gospel. It was coming out of him. And the fact that the Holy Spirit sent him there, and the very fact that somebody was attentive, they were one of the sheep that Jesus was drawing to himself since he's the good shepherd and we're not going to be lacking, he provided the messenger to explain the gospel. And the gospel is this. Jesus went to the cross for you. He kept his mouth shut because if he would explain what was going on, they wouldn't have done it. If he would have identified himself as God, the creator, nobody would have picked up a, 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 a thorn and put it on his head. Nobody would have picked up a cat of nine tails to whip him. Nobody would have taken a hammer to drive it through his wrists and his feet. Nobody in their right mind would have ever mocked him if they knew this Jesus. But he was like a lamb before the shearers. And the only way he could go to the cross was to have that quiet demeanor. But he went there with you on his mind. Why did he have to die? What is the reason why? You killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. His death is worth remembering. Because if he didn't die, we're still in our sins. And our faith is vain. 1 Corinthians 15. Do you get it? Are you going to leave this place joyful like Earl? Or are you going to leave Jerusalem like Earl did and just stay confused? I pray that the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart have led you just like Philip led him to meet the Christ. And I pray that the Holy Spirit spoke to you 
Because how can you believe on him if you haven't heard him speaking to you? Romans 10, 15. Dear Lord Jesus, there are some here today who are still struggling with, with their faith. There are, the fact that we're in church, we're all like Earl. We're all inclined to go. We all know that there's a God, but we don't know God very well. We don't understand his word. We don't understand how it fits into our daily lives. We don't even prioritize according to what God wants. Earl was looking. God, you were working on him. I pray that your spirit will work on us. And I pray that we will find the answers so that we won't be confused anymore, that we'll understand the message of that cruel cross. It was a love message. I love you this much. I'll lay down my life for my sheep. Lord, we thank you for this great love that has changed us. Lord, now we don't have to live for our flesh. We don't even have to perform to keep our salvation. We thank you that we've been forgiven. We have been forgiven and there's no more condemnation to them that are in Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to use this liberty we have to bring joy, to restore fellowship, to bring reconciliation. For that's what spiritual people do. They see those who have fallen in sin and they seek restoration. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might see the body of Christ grow, grow, grow in multiple denominations. I pray that the gospel about Jesus Christ might not be contained in these bottles of our flesh, but that we might, like Philip, explode. And may it just be a part of our our living. May the gospel be communicated by word and by deed, by our lips and by our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.